church, they're going to have these doors to our right. And let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to the prophet Isaiah. We are in chapter 9 in this Advent series about the, the, the king of blessing, uh, and he's the king of peace, and he's the king of justice. These are some of the themes that, uh, that we're going over as we're looking at, uh, at this Advent series. So if you found your place in Isaiah chapter 9, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, forever burned as fuel for the fire. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word and for this reminder who you are, what your purposes are, and how you would bring to fulfillment your plans and your kingdom. Thank you for showing us Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We pray that he would be our peace even now. We ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, well, I know many of you are, are aware by now that uh, last Sunday, a week ago, I was standing here kind of like <laughs> holding on to the side of this pulpit, uh, honestly just trying to get through the sermon. I, I, I didn't have the heart to kind of dump uh, an emergency sermon on somebody last minute. And I thought, well, I, I'm feeling a lot of like abdominal pain, but... It, I'll, I'll get through it. It'll pass somehow. You know, maybe it's just like a, just a bubble or <laughs> whatever. I don't know. And it just didn't go away. Uh, and it got worse through, through the morning. And, uh, and so instead of doing the food drive with you guys, uh, I was off to the ER. And um, man, things are just not working the way that they were supposed to work. Uh, you know, we eat food and we just assume, hey, it's good, it's all going to work out, it's fine, and you know, what we need, we absorb, what we don't need goes through us, uh, and it doesn't hurt <laughs> when that happens, and uh, for some reason, last Sunday, it hurt a lot, uh, like, so what's, how does Isaiah describe it? There will be no gloom for her, him who was in anguish, uh, this is my first time I've ever had morphine in my life, morphine works. I'm here to tell you, uh, we, we don't want to say, we understand, we don't want to admit that we understand it, we don't want to confess that life gets that painful, but it does. 
And we all know what anguish is. And we all know what gloom is. Uh, in Isaiah's day, Israel was defeated. And that, this was their experience, gloom and anguish. Uh, even though last week, as we were looking uh, through Abraham's calling, God had called him and blessed him and then commissioned him to, to be a blessing to those around him. Uh, and instead, you know, basically... Abraham's family failed and the nation of Israel failed and, and, and then you know here you have this picture as Isaiah is describing a people who weren't living in light and joy and being a blessing uh, to the nations instead they were living in gloom and in anguish. Um, there's some unfamiliar names probably uh, to most of you Zebulon, Naphtali. Uh, these are territories in the north uh, around in and around Galilee. And the reason why that's significant is because when Israel's enemies would, would come, whether it was Babylon or Assyria or Persia or Rome, uh, they would all come from the north. And so guess who gets the brunt of aggression and oppression uh, in any of those cycles of invasion? It would, it would be the territories in the north. And so these in particular, you know, Isaiah, uh, as God's Spirit's prompting him, He's preaching good news to them that they're going to they're gonna have joy. They're, he's going to make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. The day is coming when this gloomy land will be glorious again. And that's what God is, is promising. So, you know, suffering is what happens when, especially when we're looking forward to, to glory and to goodness when instead of that, you get gloom and anguish. Uh, suffering is what happens when things are, are broken, you know, body, whether broken systems, you know, whether that's governments or schools or work or whatever. Like, suffering is what happens when those places that we assume in, on good days and that we hope on bad days will, will work out when they don't. And, and suffering, therefore, is something that's universal. We all understand anguish. We all understand when things are not the way they're supposed to be. Into that experience, Isaiah is prophesying, this is what God is going to do. In verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, you know, he's using this sort of past tense, like it's done, it's a done deal. It's actually still to come, but it's so certain because of God's reliability and his faithfulness that he's speaking as if it's already happened. But they're going to see this great light. They have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness or like deathly darkness is the, the, the word picture in the original Hebrew. Uh, and on them has a light shone. And then he describes this joy of this nation that was like constrained and oppressed and beaten down. Now, instead of shrinking, it's multiplying. And this beleaguered, burdened people who were you know, walking or like drowning in darkness are experiencing this incredible joy. Uh, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. You know, so think of that kind of joy as you think about the restoration that God's promising this people who are in anguish. It's the kind of restoration uh, that, you know, an agrarian society would understand that this immense bumper crop kind of harvest where you've got to build bigger barns. Imagine having that um, Christmas bonus 
and you get, you know, and you can buy anything you want. You got to buy another refrigerator for all the food, you know, that you got to celebrate with. Uh, it's the it's it's the celebration and the joy of dividing the spoil when you get to bring home. That's not your joy. Is to comprehend blessing, the opposite of darkness and, and anguish. And so blessing is coming to, to those whose uh, experience of this world and uh, on the vertical scale with God and on the horizontal scale with, with, with creation and with our you know, people around us, our neighbors, that's when things are working the way they're supposed to work. That's what we all hope for. That's all, I mean, we secretly expect it. And that's part of the disappointment and the tragedy is like, wait a minute, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Like we have this ideal, like things are supposed to work. Where does that come from? It comes from the image of God and our, our hope. So, you know, we get this joy when things work the way they're supposed to. So Israel had a word, a unique word for this kind of, of joy, this kind of brightness and light to life. And we call it peace. Israel called it shalom. Uh, and maybe you've heard that word before. If you have, chances are you've kind of put it in a tiny little box with a bow on it, and shalom is nice. It's a nice word. But I just want to expand that understanding of what shalom is to something incredibly big, uh, bigger than life, bigger than anything you ever hoped for, because shalom is when the world is the way it's supposed to be. Shalom is wholeness. I'll, I'll leave it to Neil Plantinga to, to define it. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Uh, the world as God intended it. That's what shalom is. It's not a nice little thing that we put a box on or, you know, like, oh, what a, what a cute gift. It's our deepest longing. It's the thing you've always hoped for. It's a universal desire. Just like anguish is something that we all, is what we all really long for. Unfortunately, there's all kinds of things that are just, you know, running roughshod over shalom. The enemies of peace are everywhere. Uh, in verses 4 and 5, we get a picture of what this had looked like for Israel and what Isaiah is saying is going to be reversed. That the yoke of his burden, the enemy's of peace, the yoke of that burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, right, as on the day of Midian. And then, you know, all this battle gear is going to be burned in this big fire because uh, war is not going to be needed anymore. There won't be any more aggression. There won't be any more oppression. It will be as like the day of Midian. Uh, the day of Midian was the day when God granted victory to Gideon and his tiny, outmatched, uh, out-resourced army. Kind of like, well, imagine if last night UVA had won and beat Clemson. That would be like the day of Midian, all right? Uh, just against all odds, nobody would have seen it coming, and, you know, they would have pulled out a, a win. That's Gideon, uh, where it's obviously something supernatural and God's resources uh, reversing this terrible gloom and anguish for, for God's people. God's people have always been surrounded by enemies. And to, this is as true today as it was in Isaiah's day. So, 
You know, this looks like all kinds of things. This is, uh, the, the enemies of peace are anybody that's robbing you of a sense of shalom. Anybody that, that takes from you what, what you sensed was the way things were supposed to be. Some of you are here, you're, you're an adult. You might even be a grandparent. But you can hear distinctly. You know every word. You even can still hear the tone in that, like maybe it was a teammate. Some, the teammates, you, like that body shaming remark that just cut you, and you still remember it. And that's still the worst part of, you know, your body that you think of. It's a part about you that you hate. Because some jerk in the locker room years ago shattered your sense of wholeness of how you viewed yourself, your physical body, that body image. Shattered your, your, your sense of shalom. It could have been, um, you know, the co-worker uh, who... You guys were close, you were on a team, you had some ideas, and you know, you came up with this great idea. That coworker ran with it, took all the credit for it, even got the promotion, and here you are still stuck. You can barely pay your bills. And that person shattered your shalom. Uh, you know, it can be it could be a parent who favored your brother or your sister. It made you feel invisible in your family. You didn't, you didn't matter. Uh, your opinion didn't count. You know, it was just you were neglected. It could be a friend who betrays you and shatters your shalom, that sense of trust, that intimacy, where you, were, you depended on him. You depended on her. It could be a spouse who's withholding love from you. who's left that bond and left that covenant a long time ago. We know anguish and we know gloom and we know what it feels like to have shalom shattered. We know the enemies of shalom. They're all around us and they're within us. Because as much as we like to focus on you know, how we're the victim and the perpetrators are out there and they're coming against us and ruining our sense of wholeness and ruining our, our sense of joy and so on. What about all the ways that you and I are participating? A careless word, it can be a vindictive. We're not the people we're supposed to be. We sin, we fail, and we don't love. These are the enemies of shalom. They're around us and they're within us. And into that in, into that dynamic, that tragic dynamic, comes the prince of peace. He's actually the king of peace, uh, and in verse 6, Isaiah is prophesying about the child to be born, uh, the son who's given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the same child, by the way, back in chapter 7 of Isaiah, where the Lord himself uh, said he's going to give us a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, this, this is the fulfillment of that promise. So God promises his people a king who's going to be like any other king. Uh, he's going to be beyond what anybody's ever experienced, and he will bring true and lasting peace, true and lasting shalom. This king is going to remove the yoke 
of the enemy rule uh, that was on their shoulders, and he's going to bear this new government upon his shoulders. He's going to lighten their load, and there won't be enough adjectives, you know, right, to describe his power and his office, like wonderful counselor, uh, literally a wonder of a counselor, somebody whose wisdom is so precious that you can't get over just what's coming out of this person's mouth. They are unlike anybody you've ever listened to. And I'm not talking about just like a counselor that you go to with your life problems. As valuable as that is, and as helpful as it can be to kind of get to the end of yourself, you keep going down the same dead ends, you keep you know, running into the same roadblocks, and you go, okay, I'm not seeing something about myself, and I need help to you know, navigate life in this difficulty. That's great if you've got a counselor like that. But this is, this is more like an advisor who knows what to do about every and any situation inside things. They're, they're specialists globally. They know everything about everything. And this is the kind of counselor that, you know, God is promising us through Jesus. He is the source where we can go for complete and total eternal wisdom. And there's nobody who says the things that he says. There's nobody who can give us that kind of, of wisdom. He's the mighty God. Um, he is not uh, some, uh, you know, it's not actually not uncommon in liberal uh, circles, liberal uh, branches of, of, our, of our faith where they're going to look at that verse and because it's, it's got this bias against anything supernatural, uh, they're going to translate mighty God into uh, mighty hero or strong hero, or something like that, and because uh, they can't absorb the fact that, no, God would actually move into time and space, and that the virgin would actually conceive and actually have a child who is God with us, Emmanuel. Uh, and so they're, because they're just opposed to that supernatural perspective, they're going to say, well, this is a mighty human hero. Every single place in the Old Testament where that phrase is translated always, always refers to God, a mighty God. This is God with us. And there aren't enough adjectives to describe how amazing he is. He's the everlasting father. That he's, he's God, he's eternal, he's almighty, he's a spirit, you know, infinite, eternal, and power and wisdom being justice, goodness, and truth. And you know, like, there's, you can't contain him, and yet he comes down in intimacy uh, to be with us in such a way that we can call him father? It's the kind of God he is. And ultimately, he's the prince of peace, the one who restores our shalom eternally. So uh, Jesus is this prince of peace, the king of peace. He's the same one who would say, all right, everybody who uh, is laboring and heavy laden, I want you, I want to give you, you will find rest. In away our, our joy and our shalom, Jesus offers us his yoke. He says, I'm gonna, it's going to give you peace and it's going to give you rest. And he gives us his yoke and he trades us for our yoke. The yoke of the oppressor the burden and the aggression of the enemies of shalom. That burden, that yoke, if you can imagine a wooden yoke you know, over a beast of burden as Jesus carried that crossbeam 
on his shoulders through the streets of Jerusalem on his way out of the gates of the city up the hill of Golgotha to the place where he was crucified. He was nailed to that crossbeam and lifted up as a, as a symbol, as a cursed symbol of what happens when the, when the world turns against you and when heaven turns against you. And he volunteered for that. He willingly took our yoke upon himself and gave us his yoke of peace, his yoke of blessing. He took our yoke of curse and, and you know, shame and guilt and punishment and condemnation. He took that and gave his life on that cross so that everybody who trusts in him could have new life, could have our sins forgiven, could be justified in front of God so that there would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He willingly did that. None of us would volunteer for that. But that is a picture of how much he loves us and how committed to our shalom he actually is. That's the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this, is that nothing would hold him back. He defeated the greatest of eternal cute and campy, but I put, you know, the Charlie Brown Christmas special on the beginning of, on the front of your bulletin because, you know, you've got that lament, that Charlie Brown lament. Is there anybody who can tell us, who can tell me what Christmas is all about? You know, and Linus just shuffles up with his blankie and by memory, <laughs> which I love, recites Luke chapter two and the appearance of the shepherds, you know, and Lo, and they were out in the fields by night, keeping watch over their flocks. And, and then, you know, Linus concludes with what the angels sing. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Shalom. Goodwill toward men. And that really is what Christmas is all about. God's peace come to us. Where he would bring his kingdom of peace, in verse 7, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, the throne of his father, throne of David, and over his kingdom, right, to establish it and to uphold it. So like, it's one thing to say Jesus is the prince of peace and he's this figurehead, you know, the prince of peace. Great title, you know, it's fun to sing about. We think about that at Christmas. No, there's... There's implications to that. It, it, it's like throwing a pebble into the middle of a glassy pond. There is no part of the surface of that water that isn't affected by that ripple, by the impact of that you know, thing that agitates the water. There is no place in all the earth where the impact of the Prince of Peace coming to earth is not felt. Where we receive peace with God, with peace with each other, and then even peace with ourselves. The gospel is this beautiful thing that, that, that the zeal of the Lord is, is determined to spread over all the earth. And it starts with you know, that peace with God where, where we realize, all right, there's a reason why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace and not the Prince of War. Why? But to reconcile with us. To reconcile us and to turn us into friends. He wants peace, not enmity. And he extends this olive branch to us through Jesus, and it's this remarkable 
mysterious blend of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, he saves us and yet at the same time calls us, come, take the olive branch I am extending to you and be reconciled, be at peace. And it is our responsibility. You and I as individuals are accountable. Take the olive branch. Say yes to Jesus. Bow to him, submit to him, confess our rebellion, our, our resistance against him, and follow. Become his disciple, right? This is why in Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I like how one of the commentators, John Oswald, puts it, he says, surely the book of Isaiah indicates frequently, right, that God was powerful enough to destroy his enemies in an instant, you know, the snap. Yet again and again, when the prophet comes to the heart of the means of deliverance, a childlike face peers out at us. God is strong enough to overcome his enemies by becoming vulnerable, transparent, and humble. The only hope, in fact, for turning enmity into friendship. That's the goal of the gospel. Not punishing his enemies, but turning enemies into friends. And that's the beauty, the shalom of, of peace with God that transfers into peace with one another. Romans 12 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Promote the peace and the shalom of this kingdom that the Prince of Peace rules over. If God's approach, should our approach to our enemies be? It's not a trick question. Like God forgives us and offers peace to us. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't scream at us. He doesn't hold a grudge against us. He doesn't get bitter toward us. He doesn't hate us. He doesn't give us the silent treatment. He doesn't write us off. He doesn't reject us. He doesn't call us stupid. He doesn't do any of that. But he opens his arms. And he says, come. Just remember a couple months, well, this summer, right? Uh, <clears throat> Amber Geiger was the Dallas police officer who went into the wrong apartment and shot Botham Jean and he died, he fatally shot this man in his own apartment. And that's her trial, and there are witnesses, and one of the witnesses is Botham Jean's younger brother. I mean, he's like, I don't know, 18, 20, something. He's, he's young, young man. And Bryant, at the end of his testimony, says this to Amber Geiger. The, the white police officer who shot and killed Bryant's older brother in his own apartment, who's taken his brother away from him forever, and, you know, this member of this family forever. And this is what he says to Amber Geiger. I don't want to say how much you've taken from me. I think you know that. But I just... I hope you go to God with all the guilt. I forgive you. 
I personally, he says it twice. I love you as a person. This is, this is this young man, Brian, speaking to the woman who shot her, his older brother. I want the best for you. I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad for you. And then he turns toward the judge, and you know what happens next. He asks, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? And the judge says yes, and Bryant gets down from his witness stand, and the bailiff lets Amber uh, come, and they meet in the middle. Amber's running toward him, and she embraces him, and she is sobbing, and there, there are these... You've seen the pictures, and maybe you've seen like a one-second video clip, but I want, if it's worth your time, Google this or look it up on YouTube and watch this, this whole thing play out because this isn't any ordinary hug, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing, and it's full of grace, but it's also incredibly uncomfortable to watch it in its entirety because it goes on and on and on. She is unglued, sobbing into his shoulders, and she's just holding on to him, and he's hugging her back, and then she lets go, and then she grabs him again and sobs some more, and there's more muffled language that we don't understand, and then she lets him go, and then she does it again, and she holds him tight and sobs some more and lets go, and a fourth time she does it and keeps on holding on to him. And do you know what Bryant does in this whole awkward moment when this woman is just sobbing uncontrollably with all of her shame and all of her guilt into his shoulder? You know what he's doing the whole time? He's hugging her back. And he's receiving it. And he's embracing it. He's not ashamed of her. He's not repulsed by her. He embraces us. And Jesus isn't and he's calling us to, to share that embrace with even those around us who are the enemies of our shalom and who make life hard in the way it's not supposed to be. And to show them grace and forgiveness instead of bitterness. And then, you know, we wonder, well, what if that person doesn't love me back? What if they don't, you know, ask for forgiveness? What if they don't say they're sorry? I mean, obviously Amber Geiger's sorry and so on, but what about that? And, and then what about people who aren't safe? Listen to this quote. Forgiveness is for the forgiver. And it doesn't matter what the forgiven person does with it. You and I are simply called to be imitators of God and to live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. What those who we forgive do with that forgiveness is up to them. Forgiveness is for the forgiver, and it doesn't matter what the forgiven does with it. It was Botham Jean's mom that said that. So forgiveness is on you. Forgiveness is on me. Reconciliation takes two. 
And there's going to be maybe some proof, some evidence you need to see in that person's life to demonstrate their repentance, to let, let you know, are, are they safe to trust again? You know, and there are certainly some other circumstances where the pain is so acute and so personal that you, know, you need some wisdom on how to walk out what the future of that relationship should look like. But is this your attitude toward those who shatter your shalom? To want the best for them? Or do you want to call down hell? God gives us heaven. And he calls us to be at peace with him, and peace with one another, and then ultimately with peace with ourselves. And this may be the hardest peace for us to receive. And it's likely the reason why we keep having our sense of shalom shattered again and again and again. It's because we don't understand how our own desires and our own sin shatters our shalom. Like, would God really, would our, God give us his joy and his peace? Would he give us every spiritual blessing in Christ? Would he, would he provide these things for us and then make that joy and that peace experientially dependent upon other people? Is God that weak? Are his blessings that, you know, shallow, that we can't, we can't enjoy them in their fullness directly from him? No, instead, the gospel is calling us to receive these blessings through Jesus, what he, the way he loves us, the way he forgives us, and takes our guilt and our shame away and gives us his joy and his peace so that we are full of those things and then can overflow and be a means of grace to others. Instead of looking at the people around us thinking that my joy and my peace are dependent upon them behaving well towards Maybe something else is going on. That doesn't sound like the gospel. Maybe something else is happening in our hearts where we want something besides what Jesus, boy, and that peace. We're looking outside of the gospel for that ultimate joy and that peace. I'm not saying that, you know, people can't ruin your party. I get it. But that, that's, that soul-centered, where are you a happy person or not? Are you a peaceful person or not? This should not depend on other people. Don't give them that power. And instead, look for the places in our own hearts where we need the peace that the gospel gives us. This is why, James, your passions are at war with them. But the good news is that he gives more grace. And therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Go to Jesus, this fountain, this reservoir of joy and peace, and drink from him directly. And the more we are doing that and the less we're looking to the people around us and thinking they're the ones that God put in my life to meet my needs, no. Jesus is the one God put in our lives to meet our needs. Receive from him and be his means of blessing and grace and peace to those around us. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful that you've given us the gospel and that you've given us your peace, that through the gospel you are remaking the world, you're remaking us into who we're supposed to be so that we can love even when we're not loved, so that we can bring peace even when there is no peace, that as much as it depends on us, we can be your ambassadors and uh, your means of peace uh, to those around us. Lord, would you give us the peace that only Christ can provide? Would you help us, especially at Christmas, 
when there's all kinds of distractions, a lot of busyness, and uh, sometimes a lot of disappointment. But to not let our joy and our peace be shattered ultimately, but instead to have that deep cent- that center that is shaped uh, because the Prince of Peace has come into our lives. In his name we pray.